Good morning again. It's good to be with you on this Sunday morning as we continue through the book of Isaiah. Our scripture passage this morning is Isaiah chapter 3, uh, 1 through 8. And we'll pick up uh, in a passage that, quite frankly, is not one of those places in scripture that you may relish. It's not the place that when you're looking for maybe encouragement that you run to Isaiah 3. And yet it's, it's given to us. It's given to us by God for us, for the good of His people and the growth of His, his people in, in Christ. What we've seen just before in this passage is this, this note where in the day of the Lord that is coming, people will sort of enter caverns of rocks and clefts of cliffs from before the terror of the Lord. That's the note we left off on, on Isaiah chapter 2. And it's that same sort of tone which we find in Isaiah 3, a place where things are, are difficult. And so the question you might have as we read this text and work through it is, is why? Why would God speak in this way to His people? And that's a question I hope we'll, we'll answer. There will be grace, there will be hints of grace and, and hope, even mixed in a little bit to what God is saying us, to us this morning. And we will answer that question, Why? And we'll see the hope and the truth that God has for us. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? Isaiah chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. For behold, the Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank the counselor, and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day, he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, would you use it powerfully among us? Would its conviction, would its truth speak to us in a way that is clear because of the power of your spirit? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you uh, ever watched local news, been doing this recently, and mostly to, to look at weather reports. And if you've watched local weather reports recently, uh, there's been this sort of recurrent phrase, at least from the weather guy I've been watching, that says something to the effect of, I don't see any chance of rain for the next two to three weeks. And I know that might change. We're all looking at Monday and hoping for some rain. I, I get that. But there's this sort of recurring thing, and then he goes from that to this sort of drought map, and it just is all like dark red, exceptional drought. And after I've watched this for, you know, five or six mornings, I, I ask my, myself the question, why am, I, why am I watching this? It's just the same. I could just check this quick on my phone, get the general idea, and why am I listening to this whole story of sort of the... the gloom and doom, if you will, of our, of our local weather and drought. Why am I doing that? 
I think it might be the similar question that you have when we come to a text like this, when we've talked about judgment, we're talking about it, and we're going to talk about it some more before we get to some of the higher points in the book of Isaiah. Why are we here? The short answer for that is God has given this to us, not to trust our own wisdom, not to trust our own sort of perception of how much of this we need in God's Word, but this is what God has, has given to us, and so we'll turn our attention to it with expectation that all of God's Word is, is good for us, that teaches us, trains us in righteousness. And so that's our, that's our bent, that's our hope, our attitude as we, we come to this, not to just sort of be bogged down in the, the, the difficult parts of Scripture, but to see them in light of the full story of what God is doing, to, to actually sort of meditate on this, to sit in a text like this, to see also the need for the hope that will, will come. What we see in this text is Israel, or God's people, Judah, in Jerusalem, on the, on the brink of total collapse, sort of everything falling out. It's like a Jenga tower where if you just pull that one little last piece out, it feels like it's all going to just collapse. And that's the note that we have here. And this isn't sort of a, an academic sort of endeavor where we look at it and say, man, things were difficult for God's people back then. We also need to take what is here and move it into our lives and see where God is speaking, not just to Jerusalem and Judah, but to to you and I, to warn us, to correct us, to train us towards the hope that we have and the righteousness that he he offers. And so why why is all of this happening? Let's let's dive into the text together. Why is all of this happening? Uh, If you note in your outline, in your bulletin, we're actually going to start with the last verse we read. We're going to start with the main answer of why God is, is doing it. And so the context here is, if you, if you look at verses 1 through 15, it's this poem, if you will, this sort of declaration, this uh, indictment against God's people that is bracketed off with this idea of the Lord of hosts, the God of heaven who is coming to bring uh, a judgment to his people. And right in the middle of that, we get this, this reason for what they have, have done. It says, "'For Jerusalem has stumbled.'" And Judah has, has fallen. Now, those aren't passive words. They haven't just sort of tripped up. They haven't sort of fallen in a way that isn't their responsibility. They have done it against the Lord, as it will say in a moment in this verse, against the Lord because of their speech and their deeds. Their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. That's the, the crux of what is going on here. That's the main thing that they have done, they have in their words, the things they say and the deeds, the things that they do, they have been against God. They haven't just sort of stumbled, they haven't just sort of tripped up and and made a few mistakes. There's been an intentionality that their actions have been uh, an affront to God. They haven't sought the very things that we read about in Matthew this morning. Our God's word examines our heart as it did that. What did it, it list? It listed sort of the two great commandments that aren't new in the New Testament, they're in the Old Testament too. This idea of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and, and loving our neighbor as, as ourself, that's the summary of the law. And here, as we look at all of sort of the verses around here, that's exactly what they have failed to do. They haven't loved God. Chapter 2 talks about them sort of storing up idols and treasure for themselves. Later in chapter 3, it'll talk about how the rich have sort of taken the the plenty of the vineyard and taken it for themselves. They haven't loved their neighbors well. They haven't cared for one another. They haven't honored God, and so their words and their deeds are against the Lord. 
They should have been giving. They should have been generous. They should have been caring for the others. They should have been living their lives for the glory of God, not giving over to idolatry. And they have failed to do those, those very things. And, and maybe we're, we're tracking at this point. We know sort of God has a list of things. He's got his laws that we're not supposed to do and things that we are supposed to do. But there's a little bit more that is being communicated here. If you look at the end of verse 8, this, this, this little sentence that really is the, the main thing that they have done, they have, defying, they have been defying his glorious presence. Defying his glorious presence. Now, if you look at the bottom of your Bible, you might have a little footnote there that explains a little bit of what this phrase means. In the Hebrew, it's the eyes of his glory. Now, it doesn't translate very nicely into to English. And so really what it's getting at is this idea of his very presence, God's gaze that has been with his people, they have defied it. Defying isn't just sort of, eh, we don't really like that. There's an intentionality. It's the same word, actually, that we see in, in Numbers. In Numbers 24 and verse, verse 10, where God's people are rebelling against him when they're grumbling in the wilderness and they want water and they want all the things that they don't think God is, is giving to them. It's the same, same attitude, defying him defying his glorious presence. Remember God's presence. Where has God's presence been? Well, when they were in Exodus 40, when they get the tabernacle, the glory of God comes and fills the tabernacle. The same thing in the book of Kings with the temple. God's glory fills the temple. His presence was, was with them. His very glory, his, his perfection, all of that was sort of in this temple in this tabernacle was represented there, was close to them. He had come and he had dwelled with them. And they, they defied that. They defied it. They replaced his glory with their own. Really, the language here is not simply that they sort of rebelled a little bit, but they, they functionally said, we, we want it gone. We want his gaze. We want his eyes off of us. It'd just be a little bit easier if we could go ahead and, and live the way we wanted to live without him sort of obtrusively looking at us and, and sort of stepping into the things that we, we think we should just, just take care of. They have defied his, his glorious presence. And what this does, this language here, is it sets what's happening here in a larger story. It's not just that God's people have sort of broken a list of laws. They have functionally moved against what God is doing in all of history, of calling these people to himself, of redeeming them, of coming to live with them in, in a way that was tangible in the Old Testament and looks even further to when he will fully do that in the new heavens and the new earth. They're, they're pushing back against that very story, that very purpose of God. They defied his glorious presence. Now, what does this have to do with us? It's easy to sort of say, man, how could they have done that? How could they have defied his glorious presence? But, but you and I do the same same things. If we look throughout Scripture, we see that that same language of God's glorious presence, what, is, what does the New Testament say about God's presence? Well, it's really miraculous. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, it talks about being God's temples, that His Spirit comes and, and dwells with us. In John 17, verse 22, as Jesus is giving his, his final instructions to His disciples, He, in this prayer, this high priestly prayer for us and His followers, He prays that the glory that He has would be our glory. There's a sense that God has given us some of this as the Spirit comes and, and dwells with us. And yet, if we read further into 1 Corinthians, we know that there are times where we, we take even this reality that we are, are joined to Christ and the glory that that is and, and join it to sin. 
So we, in a sense, when we are sinning, are doing what these people are doing as well. We're defying his, his glorious presence. It's not simply that we are, are sort of looking at a list of sins and saying, ah, I don't want to do those and I know that's wrong. But there, there's more to it than that. It's an affront to God, our sin. And this is what Isaiah brings to mind today. And, and that's, that's a hard, hard saying. It's a hard truth in Scripture that our sin is, is that repulsive. It is that strong that it is defying the very glory of God. Positively, what this, this text is reminding us is that God's people are to glorify God. That is our, our joy and our hope. That is what we should be doing, glorifying God in every facet of our lives, trusting Him, obeying Him, living lives of faith and worship in our relationships, in our words, in the, the fruit that we produce to use that language. All of that is, is geared towards glorifying God. It's what they are called to and are, are failing to do. And what happens? What happens? What does God do in response to this? Well, if we jump back to the beginning of this, we see that there's stability that is, that is taken. God begins to unravel the stability that they have, in a sense, to get their attention. Verse 1 says this, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of, of water. Now, there's a lot going on in that verse as we see this declaration of the Lord of hosts. Now, that's a, a term maybe you're, you've heard, you're familiar with it. It means sort of the Lord of, of armies, the Lord of power. It's his sovereignty. And, and sometimes when we hear those words, it's maybe you think, why does God have all these, these names? Why does God have all these sort of names and declarations about him? John Calvin has a, a helpful little thing on this. God doesn't need to be called the Lord of hosts. He simply, he simply is. And so Calvin writes, uh, these names are for our ignorance and our foolishness that must be aroused by perceiving his glory. And you see what God is doing there? In this midst where his people are defying his glory, he comes to them and reminds them who he is, that he is the God, the Lord of hosts, the sovereign God, the covenant God, the one who is in control of all things. It is him and against him alone that they have sinned. Their sin is directed towards him. And so what does he do? He takes away support and supply. It's, it's really just this way of saying he's taking away everything that they rely on. And it begins with, with bread and with, with water. Now, it's possible that God is actually physically taking and bringing them, talking about bringing them into a time of, of famine. There's also a part in Scripture that uses the same language in Ezekiel 4 where God takes away sort of the satisfaction they get from bread and water. God is doing something here to remind them of what they actually rely on. All their support, all of their supply is being removed. All the material things that they, they rely on, God is saying, these things for a time are going to be, be gone in order for you to understand what you have, you have done. And then verse 2 and 3 list more of these things that are, that are taken away. The mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner. And as you're, as you're going through this list, what you begin to see is he's taking away really everything that makes their, their country, their society function well. He's taking away their security, their mighty men, their, their captains, their men of rank, all those that could control and lead the, the army, they're gone. The mighty men and the soldier, all that they relied on for protection is, is being taken away. And also the counselors and the elders, those who would be city officials that would make sure the city ran well, those, those are going to be gone. Those who are wise, those who could give good advice, 
And then for good measure, he even throws in the skillful magicians and the charmers, those whose God's people weren't supposed to look to, but in times of need sometimes did look to. He said, even those are going to be gone, taking it all away. The counselor, the skillful magician, and the expert in charms, all of those are going to be gone. And, and we, we, this is somewhat prophetic. It's looking forward to what is to come. And we know if we read through the rest of Scripture, we see places in Kings where this happens. Uh, Assyria and then Babylon come in and, and takes away all of the leadership. All those who are to lead God's people well, they're, they're taken away. The stability is gone. And, and all that is left are the, the poor, the poor people who don't have means, that don't have sort of the skill sets. Even, even the craftsmen, as it says here, even those who are skilled in that regard are, are gone. Those who could make sure that things keep moving, all of that is, is gone. This sort of total collapse is going on. So what, what is God doing here? Well, in a sense, in one, one aspect, he is judging them. He is bringing a punishment on them for what they have done. But as we read this in light of everything that is happening in the book of Isaiah, he's also doing this to draw them back to himself. He's doing this in a way to expose what they have been relying on and point to the fact that it's him, not all of these sort of things that they think are going to prop up their existence that they need to trust and rely on. That's what they're, they're doing. He's, he's revealing what is, what is really true. I know you've probably all read or, or watched The Wizard of Oz, right? There's a story, right? And there's Dorothy. She's going along, and she's got her three companions that are all looking for something, right? They're all looking for something, and they think the Emerald City with The Wizard of Oz is going to fulfill that, right? And we get to that, that scene in the movie that we all know, and there's little dog Toto, right, that comes. And at the moment when they're before the great Oz, what does he do? He sort of pulls back the curtain, and there's just this normal guy standing there. In a sense, I think that's what God is in part doing through a passage like this to God's people here and to us too. It's, it's pulling back the curtain a little bit and say, what are you actually relying on? Where's your hope actually resting? What, what do you depend on for stability? Earlier in Isaiah, we've seen them, again, piling up idols, piling up gold, all these sort of things that they think, this is, this is what it means, this is where my stability comes. But God, in his mercy and his grace, even as he confronts in judgment, also pulls the very thing that they're relying on so that they will not defy his glory, but will turn to him and begin to proclaim his glory to see that he is the one they need, not all of this stuff that they have begun to think is what matters. It's why God is, is taking these things away. He's showing them that he is not a, a tame God that they can just keep in their own little box, that they can go to him when, when he wants them. No, they have defied his glory. The wonderful God who created them, the one who sustained them through the wilderness, the one who gave them this promised land, the one who has given them his, the hope that they have even through the sacrificial system of their sins being forgiven, of life being offered to them. It's that God that they have stood against and defied. And so it's taken away to, to restore them, in a sense, to bring them back to what is true. And so for us, too, we, we can look at a text like this, and I, I don't think we have to read this text and say, God is going to take away everything in your life in order to get your attention. It's not, that's not the direct application. But sometimes God takes us through difficult things to expose to us what we're, what we're relying on. I think it's appropriate to take this passage and look at our lives and say, what am I actually looking to for support and supply? Is it all these things that they're listing? Now, now are these things right and good? Yeah, and we'll talk about more of that in a moment. 
But are these things primary, or is it the one who leads us by his good pleasure, beside streams of still water? All that Psalm 23 language of, of what they could be is contrasted in here. All the things that God offers us, they have turned from and ran to an alternative. Maybe one way of, of illustrating this, I'm borrowing this from uh, a few people throughout ch- church history, but the part I'm reading from is from, from C.S. Lewis, and it's this, it's this image of a house, comparing us to, to a house and how God works in us and brings us to glorify his name. Lewis says this, imagine yourself a house. God comes in to rebuild this house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I think what's helpful about that illustration is that idea of God, God's dwelling and his, his living. That's, that's exactly what has happened here, that God has come and dwelled with his people in the temple. He has been with them. They've defied his glory. And in the same way, God dwells with us through the power of his spirit and will, will renovate us. He, we are new creations in Christ. That, that is true if you believe the gospel. And yet God is not done with you. He keeps working and perfecting you, transforming you from one degree of glory to another to be transformed into the very image of our Savior Jesus. That's what God is doing. And even as we see judgment here and his punishment and his redirection and his refining work here reminds us that he is at work in our lives too, refining us, calling us on our sin, pointing us to the hope that he offers to us, pointing, to us, pointing us to what truly, ultimately will satisfy us. Himself, and nothing less than himself. What do God's people do in this moment as God begins to confront them, bring judgment on them? What do they do? Well, they look for a leader. Leadership is needed. They need a leader to to take them out of this situation. And so we see that in verse 4. God says, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. It's the opposite of what they, they hope they need. They have boys and infants. Now, it's possible that quite literally all sort of the adult population has been taken out. And so they're sort of left with young, inexperienced people. It's also possible this language is just talking about those who, who are truly full-grown but are acting as juveniles. In either case, the experience, what they actually need to lead them out is, is gone. It's been taken, taken away. The things that they might have trusted in have been moved away. Now, what's interesting as we read through this is the one person who's never listed is the king. It seems that even before this, the king is not functionally doing his job. It's not the king that's taken away. It's all the other people who are sort of holding things together. Something they're looking for, they're looking for a leader. And when that's gone, what happens? Verse 5, this oppression, one another, they're not following God's law. They're not doing the things that the leadership and the king were to lead them into, The youth are insolent towards the elder, the despised, to the honorable. Nothing is functioning well. This is a society that is is collapsing. And then there's this almost darkly humorous little picture of a conversation. A man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak, you shall be a leader. He says, you've got a jacket, 
That means you've got something going on. We don't even have that. So since you've got a jacket, you lead us, you take care of this, this sort of be king of this, this dumpster, and just you're, you're going to be the guy. That's what they're, they're looking for. And, and really, it's an almost humorous picture of complete desperation. A coat is all the criteria that you need to be a leader. But what does the individual in question say? Verse 7, And that day he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In my house neither is there bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. He doesn't even want to do it. So what, what are God's people to do in this moment? What, what, what do they need? They, they need somebody, it would seem, to, to guide them. They're, they're looking for that. It's actually, if you, I don't know if you've read any dystopian sort of fiction, dystopian, that sort of end of the world where everything's falling apart. Uh, as I was thinking through some of those stories, there's always, almost always, a figure that sort of steps forward and leads. Maybe you've read Cormac McCarthy's The Road. There's this, the man, right, this unnamed individual who leads with some integrity, sort of carries the light, moves forward. Maybe you've read The Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen. She's the hero. She, she steps up in a moment where there seems everything is falling apart, and, and there's her that kind of leads forward. Even in 1984, you've got Winston Smith, who sort of peers through the haze of all of this sort of confusion and, and moves forward in a way that is, is helpful. But in this text, we don't, we don't have that, do we? There's nothing that jumps out at us and says, who, who's, who's the leader? I think that might be intentional. I think we're, we're asked the question, well, who is actually going to lead his his people? Who is going to move forward? It's in a moment like this where I think we can read in some of the hope that we get in the rest of the story. The hope that there is a leader who is going to come. There is a leader who will actually do what these people have not been able to do. It's appropriate to maybe look at this and say, yes, we need good leaders in our day. We should be good leaders. We should vote for good leaders. We should do all of those things. That's, that's an application we can, can make there. But if we stop and just look at earthly leaders, I think we miss the point of what Isaiah is telling us. That it wasn't just that they didn't have good earthly leaders. They had abandoned, they had stopped following the true leader, the one who is their true king, the one who would come, the Messiah who is to come. That hope has been sort of set aside. And it's to that hope that you and I are called when we read a text like this. To say in moments where it doesn't seem like there's really anything going for for God's people, the the move is to repent and move and look to the one who is truly in control. It's appropriate, I think, to trace the thread of glory through Scripture. That glory that we've we've talked about, and it's it's a rich concept in Scripture. It's all all over the place. But we see in Hebrews 1, verse 3, where it says about Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, God's glory comes. Even as they defy his glory here, God restores his glory in his presence. When Jesus comes, he comes and he takes on flesh and dwelt among us. The glory of God dwelt among us. Why? Because of God's grace. Not because God's people finally got their act together later on in the story, but because of God's grace and his eternal plan and his sovereignty, he brings about what is true and right and good in the end. Brings his glory back, brings his mercy and his grace. And so as we read a passage like this, even as we apply it to our lives, even as we see our own sin and the things that we need to repent of, we also look to Christ. We also look to the hope that we have there, that we need Christ. Ultimately, we don't need a great leader who's going to come and solve the problems here. We need Jesus. 
who's going to come and redeem all of his creation. They need their, their great God. And so as we reflect on this, hear the warning. Don't just sort of pass over passages like this, but actually consider where God is exposing your sin, exposing the fact that, that you have defied the glory of his presence with your words and deeds. And, and remember, that's not, a, that's not a special category of sin somewhere out there. That's all of our sin. That's what it means to sin. It's to defy his glory and his presence. But even as you examine yourself and confess, you can run to the one who brings his glory and his presence. Christ in us, as Colossians says, the hope of glory. It's the hope we have, that, that, that this mess is actually restored. This real mess that we don't trivialize, but it's restored because of what Jesus does. And if we look at the world and we think things are collapsing, this situation is far worse, and God redeemed it. God brought his glory to bear again. He's faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we come to a passage like this, um, Lord, it is maybe unpleasant to have our sin brought before us, but Lord, we pray that you would make us humble. The people in Isaiah's day were, were proud. Would you make us humble to see our sin? to repent quickly of it and freely of it, to realize, Lord, that you are the one who is all of our support and our supply. Lord, thank you for the wonderful hope of the gospel that even as these people and us defy your glory as we repent, there's mercy and grace, and you bring your glory to bear on us now and in a wonderful hope that we have in the new heavens. We ask in Christ's name, amen.